0: Right, we're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it's verses um, 1 to 14. Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith.
1: So today is the second last in our series on the armour of God, and our topic today is the helmet of salvation. We looked at the shield of faith last week, and today it's the helmet of salvation. And this is the verse from Ephesians chapter 6. It says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, so we're looking at helmet of salvation today. And we'll do sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and then uh, pray in all things next week all together. So, helmet of salvation. Reading through some of the commentators this week, you get a lot of different ideas about uh, the kind of type and style of the helmet um, that there would have been. So some of them go for this one, which is like side flaps for, to protect your Bradley Wiggins sideburns. Uh, a nice comb on top that I assume made you look important or uh, kept your wife happy because you dusted the ceiling as you walked around the house. And this kind of bar across the front uh, was to deflect blows. They'd like deform if you got hit in the head so you weren't just taking it straight on your skull. Um, some would say you'd have that kind of helmet. Others say that you might have a face visor on the front that you could like lift down and flat back up uh, with eye holes in if it didn't have those you'd be dead Um, other options there were some people said it was just like a a leather cap that you'd put on and attach that you'd then put your kind of solid helmet over the top Uh, another option was a leather cap that basically had metal plates riveted to it Um, but basically what they all agreed on and what we can agree on is that a helmet is to protect your head I don't know what type that he was referring to, because he doesn't say. But helmets are there to protect your head. If you ever ride a bike, you should wear a helmet, because it will protect your head if you're ever to fall off. I think it's quite important, is it? So the armour of God covers the two most vital parts of the body in battle. It covers your head, and it covers your heart with the breath of righteousness. If you're in battle, the last two things you want taken from you are your heart. If, it, if you let somebody takes that, you're dead. If somebody takes your head, you might run around the farmyard for two minutes, but then you'll be dead. So you need both of them um, to fight, and as Christians we need both of them to live a Christian life. And I think it's important that we realise that in our head we do certain things that we don't do in the rest of our body, so our hands pick things up, but in our head we think, most of us, we remember, some of us, we consider things, and we decide on things, and we use our head to do that. And Christianity is not a faith for people so they can kind of accept it and then they turn their brain off. That's not what Christianity is about at all. We use our brains as Christians. And Christianity differs from all other religions in the whole of the world because in Christianity we, yeah, it's different in the way that other religions say you live a really good life. Go and live the best life you can, gather it all up and present that to God and if it's good enough he will accept you. Christianity flips that on its head and it says Jesus lives the perfect life. He gathers all that up and he offers it to God on your behalf if you accept it. So that's quite a difference. So, I used this analogy a couple of weeks ago and I thought I'd add pictures to my analogy and use it again this week um, because you may have forgotten. And I think that the armour of God is a bit like an ethics kit. It's the kind of the model, the wrapped up box model of Christian discipleship that you get. And I thought some of you may not know what an ethics kit is because you might have had a deprived childhood. This isn't one I've made, but it is one I wish I'd made it this well when I was about eight. So you buy, or somebody buys for you, the box of the FX kit with the Spitfire in. That was always the first one everyone started with, because it wasn't a biplane. They much harder. So you buy it, and if you just leave it in a box, it's pretty useless, because it just sits there, gathers dust, and you don't do anything with it. But out of it, you take the sprue with all the bits and pieces on, you get to know them, you pull them off carefully, you like with a sharp knife you take off the bits that you don't need you gradually glue it together and as you're gluing it together you take a lot of care over the canopy the bit that went over the pilot because if you spilt glue on that it all kind of went up and crystallised and it just looked a bit naff and then you'd paint it and you'd end up with the finished model after you'd added the transfers that was always a tricky bit for me Um, so yeah but the armour of God is something God gives to all Christians and he gives it to us and we have to take hold of it You have to put it on, we have to get used to it, we have to understand what it is and not leave it in its metaphorical box, gathering dust. It's something we have to use. So today we're looking at this idea of the helmet of salvation, the idea of being saved. And depending on the kind of church background you're in, you might talk about being saved, coming to Christ, all those sort of things. Um, But it's important, I think, as we start off to say, what is it that we are saved from? What is it we are saved from? Well, in the Bible, whenever it uses the term saved, it always refers to being saved from sin. And that means, as Christians, we are um, well, sin, firstly, what is sin, is probably a good question to answer. Sin is the disobedience that, that we all um, do in relation to God. It results in separation from God. Sin itself, that started out in the Garden of Eden, led to, to suffering, death, it led to disease, it led to natural disasters, and it leads on today to all sorts of other things, at least a, like family breakdown, at least a racism, at least those sort of difficulties, all stem from sin. So when the Bible says, uh, "saved from sin, it's talking about all those things. And we need to know what we're talking about when we're talking about being saved, when we mention sin. But I think it's important as well to realise that salvation isn't something that just happened in the past. Because if you think, like, you know, we were saved, if you're a Christian, you could say, I was saved. And some people can give you a date on the 4th of September in 71 AD. And you might look around and think, yes, that was probably you. And point to the oldest person you can see. But when we talk about salvation in the Bible, it's not just something that happened in the past. If you approach salvation thinking it's all something that happened a long time ago, you'll get to a verse like in Philippians. Uh, In Philippians chapter 2, it says, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul isn't writing there saying, I hope you worked out your salvation with fear and trembling in the past, but not now. He's saying, as Christians now, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In Romans 13, uh, we also get the message that, uh, that it says, for your salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed so salvation is something that happens in the past we work it out in the present and it is nearer to us now than when we first believed so it's still to come in a way and there's another verse that says now is the day of salvation so there's an immediacy to salvation as well so I think that salvation exists in all three tenses in past, present and future hope that makes sense it with me so far. So ultimately our rescue from sin that the Bible talks about, being saved from sin, happens in the past, happens in the present, and it happens in the future as well. Now, I do know about you, I did German at school, and I didn't really understand anything about English until I started learning a foreign language, met a friend at school called Bob, um, actual name, he used to wear a flat cap and play the accordion. Uh, you, you only get those kind of people in York when they're like 16, 17. And he taught me an awful lot about English grammar and then I vaguely understood a little bit of German grammar. Um, so my like, grasp of grammar comes from there. And until that point, I didn't really understand about you know, perfect tense, imperfect tense, future tense. I knew that I would do something in the future, perhaps, but I wouldn't really have to, to get it quite right. And he taught me all that. So we have our perfect tense, which is the past. We have our present tense. And we have our future tense. So we're going to look at these... The topic of salvation, so we'll go to the past to start with. I don't think this is what Paul's writing about in this uh, in this case in Ephesians chapter six. Um, and the reason I don't think Paul's saying we're talking about being saved, like becoming a Christian, being converted, he's not talking about that here in Ephesians chapter six, and I'll give you my reason for that. He starts off the phrase with the armor of God, he says, "Put on the whole armor of God, put on the breastplate of righteousness. No sorry. Put on the belt of truth around your waist. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. Take up the shield of faith. And at that point, he's not going to say, oh yeah, now become a Christian. Because at this point, you wouldn't say that to somebody who's not a Christian. You wouldn't say, take up the shield of faith to somebody who isn't a Christian. Because they've not got a faith to take up the shield of. They're not going to understand the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace if they're not a Christian. So I think Paul isn't here. He's not talking about sort of becoming a Christian part of salvation. But unless we get that bit right, we can't understand the next two that I think Paul is talking about. So what is past tense salvation? Basically, put it like I think past tense salvation is when somebody gets hold of the gospel in a way that changes their life and they love Jesus because of it. When somebody realises that They've been living a life thinking, you know what, if I want to get to heaven, the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to live a really good life. I'm going to gather up all my good deeds, I'm going to plonk them in a basket, and when I die, I'm going to take my basket to God and say, look at this, isn't this brilliant? Well, that's not going to work. And the reason it's not going to work is because God doesn't accept it. And I think God actually opposes that kind of um, idea. Because to say that this is a good idea, I'll take all my good deeds and give them to God, pours scorn on the work that Jesus does. Because Jesus says, "I'm going to come to Earth." Jesus came from glory. Well it was amazing. I mean, one day when we understand what heaven's going to be like, so we'll be there, we'll have a bit of an idea of what Jesus had to leave to come to Earth. So he left heaven. He came to Earth, born as a little baby in a stable. I mean, we'd have stables, here do we? But it was probably not very pleasant. Born in a stable, visited by loads of weirdos. And he grew up, he'd never sinned his whole life. And at the end of it, he died on a cross without any friends, they'd all deserted him. And his father, he felt, had abandoned him. But Jesus hung on the cross because, Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus stayed on the cross for people like you and me. And when we get a sense of that joy, we can understand what it is to be a Christian. When we realise, actually, Jesus went through the cross Because he's really excited about knowing me in the future and for eternity. Well, that transforms our whole way of thinking, doesn't it? As soon as I think, "Wow, Jesus went to the cross so he could know me and love me for eternity." Well, that like completely crushes any kind of poor self-esteem or low self-esteem, doesn't it? Because somebody's willing to do that for me. And when somebody realizes it, that is when they become a Christian. That is their past tense salvation. That day they become a Christian and they are saved. And in like big words that end in shun, there's a series on that is what theologians call our justification. We are justified with God. On the day that our sins are dealt with in Jesus, if we were in the dock trying to you know, defend ourselves by saying all the good things we'd done before the judge passed sentence, Jesus comes in and says, You know what? I'll take all the wrong things they've done and I'll give them my perfect life that I've lived. And we go free and Jesus takes our punishment. So our past tense salvation is when our sins are forgiven by Jesus and we can go on to live as Christians from then on in. So that's a past tense salvation. But that's not, I think, what Paul is talking about. Present tense, the here and now. What is present tense salvation? I've got a phrase for you, and if you're taking notes, write it down. If not, don't, um, because you've got nothing to write it with or on. The present tense salvation is the process that we go through, and this is the phrase, is we become like the one we behold. Okay? So this is our present tense salvation. We become like the one we behold. Well, naturally, we become like the people and the things that we spend our time with and that we enjoy and that we, we kind of idolise and, and like. And I found this out once when I was, um, I don't know how old I'd have been, 14, 15. I was in New York with a friend Jamie and um, we were just walking through town. And as we were heading out of town, bumped into another one of my friends coming in called Al. He's just recently got married, but that doesn't matter to you. It does to him. Uh, he bumped in, we bumped into him and we sort of said hello and a bit of a joke. And as he left and we carried on, Jamie said to me, is he a Christian? He didn't say anything about Jesus or anything like that. I said, yeah, he is. He said, how your you know? He says, well, you've got like the same manner and how you do things. I thought, isn't that amazing that... Me I mean, I had become a little bit like Jesus so much that he could see it in me, and he saw it in this person he'd never met. he said, actually, you're a little bit like Jesus because you're Christians. I can just see that. And I don't know how he could see it. Um, probably didn't know me all that well. But he could see it. In the, we'd obviously beheld Jesus to some extent. Though. We'd become a little bit like him, and he could see that. I think, naturally, the things we spend our time looking at, the things we spend our time striving after and enjoying are the things that we become like. When someone takes up a new hobby... They start to learn everything about it, don't they? They start to like idolise it a little bit and they, they learn about all the famous people that are involved. Or like if it's sports, they, you know, they learn who they're like, best in the world are. Um, and at one point, when I was quite into cycling, I knew, this is really sad to admit to this, I could tell you the Shimano part number for pretty much all of their mountain bike parts, which is very sad. Um, but it was a very logical system towards it, so it was very easy to learn. It didn't, it didn't benefit me at all in my uh, pursuit of cycling. I was never all that good. But, um, but we could talk about, you know, whatever it was on a bike, and I could give you the part number, because it was Shimano. That's really sad, and I do apologise. But we become like the things that we behold. And for Christians, our plan is to become like Jesus. We don't become a god in that sense, or we don't become gods. We're not... Mormons or some kind of Eastern religion where we think if we work hard enough we might reincarnate ourselves enough times to eventually become part of God or we, if we work and like do our religion well enough we'll become a God of our own planet like the Mormons believe but we want to become like Jesus when Paul says in Philippians uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling that's the process of becoming all the more like Jesus as we go on but I've got a question for you that I don't like to ask myself um, and it's this if you're not like more Christian now than you were this time last year, you've got to ask yourself, are you spending time beholding Jesus? Are you spending time loving Jesus? Are you setting aside time to worship Jesus? Are you giving to Jesus' work? The Bible says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we don't give to Jesus' work, our heart sometimes can go from it. If we give to it, then it can be there as well. Jesus says, where well, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whether that's your time that you pour into his work, whether you spend time with Jesus. We have to um, just sometimes check ourselves, to see actually, am I becoming more and more like Jesus years, as years go by? So our present tense salvation is the process we go through where we behold Jesus that much that we become like him. As a church, we should be looking at Jesus to the point that we all start becoming a bit like him. And the big word that ends in shun that talks about this to theologians is sanctification. The process of being like cleaned up and purified to be more and more like Jesus. So that's that one. And then there's future. I was really tempted to call it per-future. So they all began with P. But um, that would have been silly. So I didn't. And I think when we talk about future tense salvation, we sometimes um, we sometimes get so focused on ourselves and the, the sort of Christian fight that we're going through day by day and week by week. We sometimes focus on our own little battles so much that we forget the war that's going on. Does that make sense? Sometimes we get so sort of inward focused and thinking, oh, I'm really struggling with this and I'm really struggling with that and I'm struggling with the other, that we sometimes forget to take the bigger picture to see really what's going on. So. The Bible in a nutshell says that God made the world out of nothing to start with. Adam and Eve in the garden, they were in perfect relationship with God. And it was broken by sin. And sin then started to grow and grow. People were killed. Um, yeah, ungodliness kind of raved all over the land. And God said, I'm going to start again. He flooded the earth. He starts with Noah and his family, and they grow up. And God starts to speak to the people through prophets and priests and kings. And he worked his way um, all through the Old Testament until the end of Malachi. God stopped speaking to his people for 400 years and after those 400 years Jesus is born. Jesus then you know, he, he goes about his work he does his miracles he gives his teaching he gets the disciples and he dies he rises again and he ascends into heaven. A few days later the spirit's given to the disciples they start doing amazing things they teach they, they do miracles and then they go on to plant churches and that's sort of the age that we're living in that we're in the age of like the church age we're living in part of that at the minute we're out here we're part of a church we want to see the gospel spread throughout the world we want people to become Christians but that's not where the Bible ends the Bible doesn't end there the Bible ends with the book of Revelation and basically the one line summary of the book of Revelation is Jesus wins in the end and our future salvation is based on that the fact that one day Jesus will come again one day Jesus will judge the earth people will be all gathered together and every and every knee will bow. The Bible says every knee will bow. It doesn't matter if you're Christian or not Christian, you're going to bow to Jesus because on that day, he'll either be your conquering king or your enemy. So much so that Christians are going to be so elated in worship, other people are going to call the mountains to fall on them and cover them so that you can't see them. And for Christians on that day, we'll need to take off our helmet of salvation and receive a crown of glory. So our past tense salvation is when we become a Christian our present tense is our working out becoming more and more like Jesus and our future salvation is when we meet Jesus eventually and that is called glorification Um, just to let you know but then I thought that's all excellent but why do we need a helmet why do we need a helmet of salvation and I've got a couple of reasons and the first one is because we forget those things and I think that's true I think we forget that those things are true that we are saved that Jesus is constantly saving us and helping us to become more like him and one day he'll rescue us from sin entirely and the second is that we have an enemy that we're fighting against and the enemy is going to attack us and I think there's three ways that the enemy will attack us He'll attack us deceit doubt and with discouragement. So I'm hoping that deceit is the next word to come up on the screen. Yes. Preparation for you. So, I think when the devil tries to deceive us, it works in three steps. It goes, question God's word, deny God's word, substitute God's word for a lie. Okay, they're the three steps that I think the devil uses. And I have a small case study. If you look in the Garden of Eden... When we see the devil interacting with Eve, first one is question God's word. The devil goes to Eve and says, Did God really say? Now, come on. Is your mind working? Did God really say that if you eat the fruit of the tree, you know, that everything will go wrong? Did he? Is that what he really said? And then the devil denied God's word, because that's not what he said. You know, that's not right. That's not quite what he meant, is it? And the the punishment was If you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you'll surely die. He says, you'll not surely die. Not at all, no. If you eat of it, you'll be like him. You know, it denies God's word. And then, substitute God's word for a lie. If you eat of it, you will become like God. So, question God's word. Did God really say? Deny God's word. You won't really die. Substitute God's word for a lie. If you do it, you'll be like God really tempting the way it works through. But I think those same things happen to us regularly in our lives. And when we when we come across it, we have to learn to respond to those things with an understanding of the gospel that says, you know, I can I can have the tools to to take this temptation and and deal with it. And if we can deal with it at stage one, that's a lot easier than dealing with it at stage two or three, or giving in to sin altogether. So in stage one where the devil comes along and he says, Did God really say that you should do this or that you shouldn't do this? We have to learn to respond. We have to know our Bibles to the extent that we can say, do You know, what? yes, you did. And um, and it's here. And we can open our Bible and we can say, Yeah, we can we can encourage ourselves that God did really say what he said. And if we know our Bibles, the devil can't get round us that way. So that's the first one. We have to know our Bibles to the extent that we can say. God did really say that and God really said that because it's going to benefit me because God wouldn't do anything that wouldn't benefit me. But then stage two, if we've gone past that and the devil says, that's not what he meant. Now he didn't mean that whatsoever. We, get to re- we have to teach ourselves to respond with, you know, yes he did, he really did and if he didn't, if he didn't mean it, why would he let Jesus go through what he went through on the cross? If God didn't really mean what he said, he wouldn't have had to bother with that. But God did mean what he said. God meant what he said and he said what he meant. And the last one was uh, the devil substituting God's word for a lie. He'll say, "No, if you give in to this, you'll benefit from it. You'll enjoy it. You'll love it. But we have to respond with, do you know what? I'll benefit so much more by growing as a Christian and, and resisting the temptation that you want me to give in to you. If we have our eyes fixed on the prize that God has for us, being with him forever, we'll not want to give in to things today that will spoil that. So that's the first one. The we'll try and trick us up with deceit. So he will try and um, question God's word, deny God's word, and substitute God's word for a lie. The second one is he will try and use doubt to put us off. I think the devil wants us to question our salvation at all. He wants us to forget that we've got a helmet on to the point that we want to take it off and just chuck it away because it's hindering us and it's holding us back. And I think there are a couple of things that we can do when this happens. Firstly, when we start to doubt, when we start to think, is God really there? Does God really love me? Am I really a Christian in the first place? We have to look back and we have to praise God. We have to look back to the cross and say, actually, you know what? I do sometimes doubt God, but I thank you so much for what Jesus did. If we can get that into perspective, that like I said before, that Jesus was willing to come out of glory, be born as a human, live a life that was perfect, go to the cross, die and rise again, so that he could know you and me forever, we can look back and we can praise God for what he's done. We can thank God for what he's done in Jesus and what he's going to do in the future. And the other thing we can do is we look ahead. We look ahead to the prize that God has for us, the prize that is eternity with him. So if we're doubting, we look back and we thank God for what he's done, and then we can thank God for the result of that, which will be an eternity with God, free from sin, suffering, Satan, death, evil, all those things. And we can thank God that he's willing to count us worthy of suffering for Jesus. That's what Paul says. Paul talks about being willing to suffer for Jesus. And we have to take that same attitude, which isn't easy. And then the last one that I have for you here is discouragement. The devil will try and use discouragement. Um, to knock us back and I think this can come in at two points of our Christian life the first one can be if we've been fighting faithfully and struggling with sin but, but doing okay and but we're weary and we're kind of battle scarred and, and struggling or the other point of discouragement can come in is if we've been being unfaithful not doing what God wants and we've been letting him down if we're weary, it's so easy isn't it for so the devil to come in and say, If God really loved you, then it wouldn't be this hard. If God really loved you, He'd make it so much easier for you. And I think there's something that we can do to try and help us respond to that is to learn for us to ask for help. It's not something that we often want to do, and it can be difficult and it can be uncomfortable, but we can go to our Christian friends. And not just ones that will say, no, there you'll be all right. But ones who will say, actually, what I need to do for you is I need to encourage you with the gospel. I need to remind you the fact that God's love extends from the beginning of time to the end of time. That God has an overarching plan for your life, that God loves you. And you may be tired now, but God is really pleased with the way you've been fighting. And the fact that God's love undergirds us through everything that we go through. So God has an overarching plan and he's in control of all things and his love supports us and undergirds us in all things. We need to be willing to ask our friends to help us and that we'll share those, those truths with us. So you know what? You've got to keep fighting because God loves you. God wants you to endure to the end and keep going for him. And secondly, if we're facing discouragement because we've been struggling and we've been letting God down, we've been unfaithful. And the devil comes along and says, Call yourself a Christian. God is not going to be pleased with you for what you've done. You know what? God might even choose to scribble your name out of the book of life. God, he's, he's that displeased with you to the extent that he'll just kick you out and get rid of you. What do we do then? I think the first thing we have to do is we look back and see the grace that God shows us. Remembering that Christianity isn't about putting all our good deeds in a basket and offering them to God as a kind of glorified Christmas present and thinking it will do well. But we look back and realise that it's not our basket that matters because we don't even have one. But it's the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life, died a perfect death and rose again so that we can be accepted by God. When we've been struggling with sin and we've been letting God down, we look back and we thank Jesus for everything he's done. And when we do that, we can be reinvigorated as Christians to go on And say, you know what? Now, through the strength and support that God will give me through Christ and through His Spirit, I'm going to go on and overcome some of these difficulties that I'm facing. Not that we'll ever make it perfect in this life, but in the future, when we meet Jesus, we will. So I want to give you this challenge to finish. You need to put on your helmet of salvation. If you're not a Christian, I'd urge you to get your past tense salvation all sorted. Get to know Jesus. Understand the gospel and love Jesus for what he's done. Secondly, behold Jesus to the extent that you become like him. And thirdly, keep your eyes fixed on the prize of being in glory with him forever. Because that will keep us focused on what he's done for us. So I'll pray and then we'll finish with a final song and then Ian can give us some notices. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for... The blessings of your word. Father, we thank you for all the good things that you give to us. And Father, we thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that He is the perfect person. Father, we thank you that He is uh, the absolute truth. And Father, we thank you that Jesus was willing to come from glory, to live on this earth, to suffer in ways unimaginable to us on the cross, to lose all His friends while He was there. Father, help us. To understand that Jesus did that because he loves each and every one of us. So much so that he wants to spend the whole of eternity with us. Father, we thank you that for that, that is how much Jesus loves us. That we are that special to him. That he would do that for us. And Father, I pray that you would help us to behold Jesus. To spend time worshipping him. to Spend time reading your word and understanding it. So that we would become like him. And Father, help us to look forward to the day when you will come again. That you will judge the earth. And everything will be wrapped up. Sin will be dealt with finally. And we'll be with you forever. Amen.